shush, please. Shush. Oh, that was very good. That was very good. Shushing. Very, very, very quiet. Jolly good. Jolly good. I hope you enjoyed your break. Thank you, Andy. Um, as I was telling you before, I, I placed this classified ad. And I did have one response to my ad, and uh, it was from a man who said he was a cardiologist, which I was very pleased about because at my age, it's very important to be around somebody who knows a lot about cardigans. <clears throat> and cardigans are very important to us. And I, I was very excited because he said he had um, a large print hardback Moby Dick. So you can imagine, I was very keen to get my hands on that. Um, however, my great expectations were dashed when it turned out that all he had was a little Kindle. <clears throat> So that was the end of that. <clears throat> and I went back to my library and my books, so just as well. So our next guest is Jack Blackburn. Jack has spent a lot of time in my library. <clears throat> um, in fact, he was in my library just the other day asking me where the self-help books were. And I had to say, well, Jack, if I told you, that would rather defeat the object, wouldn't it, dear? Anyway, he's, uh, Jack is another, another performer who has moved along the spectrum between the classifications of 700 and 800, as he is a performance poet and a portrait painter. He lives in South London, and it says here he's never done much with his life other than fun, having lots of fun. <clears throat> so jolly good. So yes, please welcome Jack Blackburn. Uh, thank you. Uh, yes, it is poetry, but don't worry, don't worry. You don't have to leave. Uh, I am the world's first stand-up tragedarian, and uh, tonight I'll be doing one of the oldest uh, tragedies, uh, which is known as the Scottish play. Uh, but first of all, if I could just ask these three people down here just to play the part of, play the, part of the witches, if you could just shout that out for me, you three. What are you, fucking deaf? I didn't say I was the Mac Daddy, I said I was the Mac Beth. What you only see on the film reels, for me, is the real deal. I'm doing cocaine and hash deals and cash deals to get my meals. That's why I'm real and I ain't afraid to steal and kill. And I will until I'm king of the hill. Still, though I get a thrill from power and riches, what this itch is, is these bitches, the three witches, told me and I told the missus that this is the thing. I'm going to be king. No clue how to swing it. And shit, the man, Duncan, would have to get hit, which I must admit isn't my favourite plan. Because at the moment, Duncan is my biggest fan. It seems a shame to maim where there's no blame, just for my personal gain. But the prophecy of the free. See, I told the wife on the phone, now, she's like a dog with a bone, won't leave it alone, going, go on, go on, go on. You are the one who should be on the throne, and Duncan is coming to stay at our home. And she says, if I had backbone, I would go get a big fucking knife, and whilst Duncan's asleep, I'd take his life. She's pretty hardcore, the wife. She said, I said I would do it, so I should go through with it. I'd be a pussy if I fucking blew it, so screw it. Now I'm doing the midnight creep whilst Duncan's asleep. The knife amnesty, 
I ignored, see? Now, is this a dagger I see before me, like the one I now draw, and I hear a bell? It's a death knell calling Duncan to heaven or hell. He snores and then stab, stab, stab. Duncan's no more, and I'm covered in gore, and the wife she swore, a quick shower, and we'll think of this no more. But what the fuck is that knocking at the door? But this is the thing, I must admit, it's good to be king, and no one says shit. You see, no one dare bear witness, because they're all scared shitless. I, I'm, because I'm better than Mactada El Sada. You better believe my version or leave. See, I blame it all on Duncan's sons. Now they're on the run whilst I'm having fun. There's only one thing though, my best mate Banquo. He's been in on this since the get-go. He knows too much. That fucker needs kicking into touch. So I get some murderers I've heard of, some wise guys, to organize a drive-by. It's got to be Banquo. Bye-bye. Why? For my peace of mind. And then I find it's time to have a party and get all the aces and players and faces up in my place, snorting cocaine and drinking champagne. It's ace, this. No one dare face me or get facedy. And then I hear... That Banquo's been wasted, so I'm elated. But wait, what's this? Banquo's meant to be dead? But there he fucking is, with a bullet wound in his head. And I start shouting, full of dread. And the wife, she said, you're meant to be the king. The party's in full swing. You're meant to be the host with the most. Not freaking every fucker out, shouting at some ghost. She gives a toast and says to ignore me, tries to blame it on epilepsy, the DJ. He play a slow jam. I'm trying to get with the program, but I'm having another line of cocaine. Well, fuck me, there's Banco again. And I'm saying, shake not thy gory looks at me. I wasn't one of the three who did the deed. Another wife, she pleads. There's no more pretending. The party is ending too soon. Everyone thinks I'm a loon. The wife calls me a goon. And maybe I am going insane or snorting too much cocaine because there's only one thing on my brain. How long will my reign maintain? So I go and see the witches again, and I'm saying, how now, you secret, black and midnight hags? Tell me, you slags, how long will this go on? How long will Macbeth be gangster number one? They say, don't worry, Macbeth, my son, you cannot get done. They say no one can take Macbeth down until that pub, the Burnham Wood, gets up and starts moving around town. Well, I think sound. And they say no one can take Macbeth out unless they didn't come out of a woman's womb which I assume won't happen too soon. So once again, I'm over the moon. But now the wife's in the gloom. She's taken to walking about in the night with one candle light, trying to wash her hands white, talking shite about blood. I wish she would not. And then my enemies, they start to plot. And it's like a fucking army they've got. Is Macbeth bothered? Not. I cannot get shot unless one of them's not from a woman's womb. And then I find out too soon, they find my wife with her veins open wide. Suicide. She died. She couldn't get the guilt out. She couldn't keep it inside. Out. Out. Brief candle. She couldn't handle it. Shit. Life's just an hour on the stage full of fury and rage until some fucker turns the page and then story over. That's it. And let's all admit, it doesn't mean shit. My enemies start to circle around and then they found... That pub, the Burnham Wood, has been closed down and it's about to reopen on this side of town. Some tough, Cormac Duff, starts acting rough. I say, you think you can take me on? You're wrong. 
You must have balls bigger than King Kong, unless you're the one who's not from a woman's vagina. He says, I think you'll find, yeah, that I was born by Caesarean. Now I'm the scary one. And he pulls out his gun. I say, lay on. And then bang, 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 Macbeth is done. I say, <laughs> I've never heard Shakespeare like that before. <clears throat> so, on to our next reader. Our next reader is Chris McCrodden. Chris McCrodden was born in South Shields and has been at various points in his life a butcher's boy, a burlesque dancer, and a hand model for a giant V for victory sign on Canary Wharf. Now, I remember Chris when he was a burlesque dancer because I remember him coming into my library and asking me where he could find the books about Vaseline. And I said, oh, you'll find them over there in the non-friction section. <clears throat> and uh, he now lives in London and works in PR, so he's certainly made a career out of making sure nothing sticks. <clears throat> so, you could describe his life as full-time fiction. <laughs> if you like science fiction and graphs and gifts from RuPaul's Drag Race, you can follow him on Twitter. So, please welcome Chris McCrudden. Hello. Right. Do the microphone shuffle. Hello, everyone. Tonight, I'm going to be reading from my debut novel, Battlestar Suburbia. And I want you to imagine a world, this world, Earth, but 10,000 years into the future. The machines have taken over the Earth, except they're all machines that are descended from the consumer appliances that we know today. So the world is filled with walking toasters and talking smartphones. Um, they have banished the human race to um, orbiting council planets called dull stars, which, uh, which go, around the, uh, go around the Earth. The section I'm going to read from the novel here centres on our main character, Darren, who has accidentally killed a robot and has been rescued by a mysterious woman called Kelly, who has taken her to see her mum, who lives in a hair salon called Curl Up and Die, which lives in the sewers of their local doll star. And they've just had a terrible, terrible fight. I'm terribly sorry I had to witness that spectacle out there, Darren. Janice trilled as she poked at her hair. Kelly and I have one of those stormy mother-daughter relationships, don't we, love? We'd be a walking, real-life story if the publicity weren't enough to have us both shot on the spot. Another pointed look at Kelly. Mind you, our Kelly's always, been, always thought herself quite the celebrity. Are you two going to start fighting again? Asked Darren, fumbling with a wafer biscuit. Because if you are, I'd rather take my chances with the fuzz. Course not. Eat your biscuit. Darren saw the use-by date on the wrapper was 300 years before he was born. He put it back in the box. Janice began wrapping her collapsed hair into kerners. Kelly, you see, is forever heading upstairs to tear it up a bit. You know, service a few machines, find a nice lad or three to take her out. Quite the starlet. Me, I appreciate the quiet life. 
I've got my little business. And of course, I don't know what my ladies would do without me. Kelly jumped to her feet. Mum, no. You brought him all this way. It's only polite. She clapped her hands. Ladies, she announced, where are your manners? We have a new customer in the salon. When was the last time that happened? Darren peered into the dimness at the back of the salon. It was difficult to see much, other than a row of four chairs wedged in between a wash basin and the wall. They were large, with padded arms and seats, a straight back, and instead of a headrest, a contraption that looked like a plastic crash helmet. It was only when he heard the faint hiss of laboured breathing that he realised that there was something in the chairs. He got to his feet for a closer look and saw that each chair was occupied by a woman. Their twin sets and tights hung from their bodies like shrouds on genteel ghosts. Dry white skin drooped from prominent bones. All he could see of their heads were deftly powdered chins. Darren felt the water draining out of his mouth and into some safer enclave deeper in his body. He glanced at Kelly, who shook her head. He's not afraid of a few old ladies, is he, Kelly? tutted Janice, who by now was down on her hands and knees, training a yellowing electrical flex into an extension lead. Kids today. Right, here we go. The plug snapped into place and four elderly electric motors sputtered into life. Darren felt a warm gust of air on his face. Oh no, he thought, not more hair dryers. Then the lights in the shop gutted out and the crash helmets began to glow. Ladies, said Janice, I'd like you to meet a young man of my daughter's acquaintance. Darren, may I introduce you to my good friends, Ida, Ada, Alma, and Frida. At the mention of each name, a screen on the relevant hairdryer, hairdryer, the relevant dry helmet, flashed a smiling emoji. Darren gawped at Janice, who, narrowing her eyes, said, where are your manners, lad? Go on, say hello. Uh, hello, ladies. I hope you're well today. Well, snapped the leftmost woman, flattening its smiling emoji into a much less friendly frown. We've been stuck under these dryers for more years than I care to say. Well doesn't come into it. Well, will you give it a rest, Ida? said the second woman in from the left, tipping a winking emoji at Darren. I'm Ada, and any friend of Janice and Kelly's is a friend of mine. So, this is your fancy man, Kelly, called the next woman along with a grinning emoji and a feeble attempt at an elbow-intensive gesture. Because if he's not, pass him along. Your auntie Alma's not fussy. Darren's blushes were spared by the woman on the far right, whose dryer helmet flashed with a round, open-mouthed emoji. Quick, called Janice to Kelly. Frida's receiving. Come on, you two, pointing to Darren. Join hands, everyone. Darren shuffled in between Janice and Kelly and watched as the four women's skeletal fingers flexed and groped for each other's hands with agonising slowness. Frida was the first to speak. The spirits are with us tonight, ladies. The veil between the worlds is lifting. Way back before she was, well, this, Janice told Darren, our Frida was a bit of a medium. Really? said Darren. Mediums were another of the fairy tales that thousands of years of machine rule had failed to rub out. 
a fabled cast of human beings who were able to talk to computers through the power of thought alone. They'd been the last organic beings in existence capable of getting through to the internet. But they all died out, didn't they? Oh, Frida died all right, replied Janice, but she also forgot to stop existing. Now shush a minute. I think there's something coming through. Thank you very much. Thank you, dear. I have to say that was a very nice shush in the last sentence there. I do like a bit, I do like a nice shush. Nothing like a good shushing, that's what I say. <clears throat> so, our, oh, somebody shushing me? <sighs> Be careful. So, our last reader of the evening is Jack Dowd. Now, Jack's career, his writing career, started at the back of a classroom scribbling stories into his school book. Where are my smelling salts? Defacing his school books. <clears throat> Normally I would consider that a hanging offence. Uh, I mentioned earlier that young Joe Orton used to come into my library and I did catch him once defacing the library books. And <clears throat> I, I, normally, normally I, I, I would bar them on the spot, but I felt very sorry for, for, for Joe. He was, he was such a sweet boy. So I said, Joe, don't do this, Joe. It is a crime. And if you carry on defacing the library books, you will find yourself in prison, locked up with hundreds of large, burly, sex-starved men. And for some reason, this didn't put him off. <clears throat> and he carried on defacing the books, and he went to prison. But there we are. Anyway, so <clears throat> Jack Dowd seems to have got away with it. <clears throat> he started scribbling stories into his school books. In 2015, he graduated from London South Bank University with a degree in creative writing. I hope he'd bought some exercise books by then. And in September this year, he published his debut novel, Empty Nights. He's also had numerous short stories published and his play, Captured, performed at the Chelsea Theatre. <clears throat> and he's also been assistant producer on a radio play in 2014. So that's enough about him. Let's hear him read his work, Jack Dowd. Uh, hello everyone, my name's Jack Dowd. This is uh, my novel, Empty Nights. It was published on September the 1st, so it's fairly quite recent. Uh, this is my first ever book reading, and I'm covering from a bit of a cold, so please bear with me. And I should probably say, the book is told in the form of an online diary, or an online vlog, so to speak. Uh, blog, sorry. So it's in that sort of format. And I hope you enjoy. Wednesday, 24th of January, 11 minutes past 8. Milton Mill Factory. Dr. West suggested that I should just write a blog to unpack everything, and I need to tell you about my school trip. Does anyone recognise where we are? Mr. Roth asked. We were on a patch of wasteland next to the River Thames. I could see the riverbank from my position at the back of the class. Dead bushes separated the land from the river, and across the water were rows of warehouses. Weeds sprouted out from between the cracked concrete that paved the ground. A Docklands light railway train rattled above us on an elevated track, and to our left was a factory, white smoke pouring out of its chimney. The ruins of the old factory lay before us. All that remained was a crumbling wall sprayed with graffiti and several stone pillars. It was obviously a disused factory we'd been talking about in our last geography lesson, 
But I didn't say anything. When no one, apart from the seagulls, answered, Mr. Roth said, This is the Milton Mill factory, or it was before it was torn down. Yasmin, pay attention. You need to know about Yasmin. She lives opposite my house, on the other side of the railway line. I used to speak to her in primary school all the time. She used to be top of the class. When we started secondary school, she started to pretend she wasn't smart anymore. We're in different circles now. Yasmin smirked and elbowed her boyfriend Dean as Mr. Roth looked away. Dean's got tattoos of black fire inked up his arms and a broken nose from a fight he had last year in the canteen. In year 11, he's at the bottom of all of his classes because he enjoys tormenting others more than learning. The only reason he's even in sixth form is because the school is paid per student. Your task, Mr. Roth continued, is to create a report of why the Victorians thought that this was the ideal place to build a factory. This essay will form part of your coursework, so don't waste your time. Keep in mind our distance from the city and the uh, natural resources. He glanced at the river. You have half an hour before you need to head back. I'd actually Googled the factory last night, so I knew what I was going to say in my essay. No one in the car screwed up with me, so I wandered around the site for 20 minutes trying to look busy. I looked at these luxury flats opposite, thinking about my essay. The balcony handrails literally glistened, and I could see through the sliding doors into these really posh apartments. I swear, there was even a bloody yacht being unmoored right outside on the river. There's a rustle from the bushes, and Dean scrambled out, twigs tangled in his hair. He blanked me and marched back towards the class, scowling. I glanced down the riverbank and spotted Yasmin. She was walking towards the water, stumbling on the uneven ground. As she adjusted her hoodie, I noticed that she was shaking. Yasmin? Either Yasmin didn't hear me or chose not to answer me. She crossed her arms over her chest and lowered her head, facing the river. I couldn't leave her there, could I? I clambered through the bushes and landed on the riverbank, kicking my shoes in mud. I could see the water was lapping at Yasmin's trainers. She seemed to be standing with a hunch on her back, and she was surrounded by broken bottles, branches, and other debris. A different girl to the one I once knew. Yasmin? Piss off. She picked up a box between her feet and flung it into the river. I am terrible at comforting people. Mr. Roth was calling everyone back, I said. We're going home. I'll be there in a minute. Yasmin didn't move. The box drifted back to her feet. As I approached, she snatched it up. Yasmin, you all right? She turned to face me. Tears had ruined her mascara, and her bottom lip was quivering. My first thought was that she had a fight with Dean. Then I saw the box in her hand. A pregnancy test. Henry, admin one. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. I